What's up, Corey? What are you doing? Oh, hey. Um, just reading this book here. Yeah? Is that any good? Yeah. Yeah, it is really good. Hey, um, you're an author, right? I tell people I am. Okay. Well, if you were to write a book on travel, what, what would you do? Oof, I'd probably go on a long walk, like, to at least the end of my street. Okay, that's that's pretty far for you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Steve Hunter, who who wrote Relish in the Tread here, he actually walked 3,000 kilometers across Europe to Istanbul. This is Steve's second story. Welcome to Second Story, everyone. My name's Corey Leckie. With me, as always, is Josh Sabalski. And uh, today we have a very special guest, uh, Steve Hunter. Steve Hunter, you've... Uh, you're you're from Sarnia, but you've done a bunch of traveling around the globe, and uh, you've written a book. So hmm. let's get into that. Uh, it's called Relish in the Tread. So, um, you know, I, I guess people are trying to find catchy titles for their books so that they get more readers uh, on Amazon. Um, but I'm not really, you know, why did I independently publish this? Uh, I grew up on punk rock going to oddballs in Sarnia Me uh, too. in the basement and, you know, listening to these random kids playing random music. Uh, and it was great. Like the band shell at Canaterra, you know, we'd all go there. Like uh, I've just always been sort of counterculture. So I don't really, I have a really hard time, uh, you know, creating things that fit in the mold. Right. Um, hence hitchhiking 120,000 kilometers across the, the world. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So relish in the tread, uh, it's a play on words, relish in the tread of your boot. So like either, you know, hot dog sauce or whatever else stuck in the tread of your boot, annoying you while you walk along the way, um, or else relishing you know, enjoying, like, like deeply enjoying, like, like really taking it in, taking in the, the soles of your, of your shoes and feeling the, the earth. Um, so the book is about um, the time that I spent walking across Europe. I did 3000 kilometers. Uh, so one summer I decided to walk the Camino de Santiago, which is a very famous commercial pilgrimage way in Europe uh, across Spain. And the most popular route is from a place called Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Paul in the Basque area of France. And then 20 kilometers later, you end up in Spain in a, over a little part of the Pyrenees in what's called Roncesvalles. And it's a couple more days to Pamplona, which is one of the that's like the big city in Spanish Basque, you know, where all the bulls run. Um, so basically it just follows this, this old uh, pilgrimage trail until you reach this cathedral, Santiago de Compostela. Um, majority of people stop there. For me, I'm not religious. Again, punk rock. Uh, <laughs> so th- there was no reason, uh, sorry, I didn't walk it for any kind of religious purpose, um, nor spiritual, because like, you know, most people say, oh, you must be so spiritual now that you've been to India and Bangladesh and, uh, you know, Middle East. And I'm like, no, not at all, actually. I'm, I'm kind of, I, I'm almost like uh, signed off on nihilism. Um, not that I don't believe in anything and i think nothing is worthless it's just that you know nothing really matters like it you're everything comes down to what you choose yourself you know what i mean if i want to walk across europe i just make it happen uh i don't i don't like you know when i twisted my ankle uh in a ditch overgrown by grass because i got drunk the night before i'm not like oh why is the why is the world cursing me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know it's like man it's my own damn fault 
So you're taking well, ownership for your own life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and essentially I think, I'm sorry, but I think religion really takes away ownership from people and, yeah. and they, they start, you know, saying, Oh, well, it's God's will. Uh, like I, I taught some classes in Egypt. I, I learned how to teach English there and somebody wouldn't show up for class and they'd be like, inshallah, which means God's will. It's like, come on, bro. Yeah. <laughs> um, come anyways, see, come so Egypt. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come see, come see, yeah. Um, so at the cathedral, um, when everybody's crying and celebrating the end of their walk, I've still got three more days until the coast because um, I had lived in Australia, traveling around Australia. I worked as a carny, um, made a bunch of money, and was able to sort of roam around and spend a lot of time on beaches. I fell in love with beaches. Growing up in Sarnia, we have beaches. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're pretty rocky. Yeah, they're not the, you know... We rave about our blue coast, but it's not the nicest of. Yeah, yeah. Like on a, on a perfectly, you know, when the sun is angled at the right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, anyhow. It's, uh, it's hitting the industrial. <laughs> industrial. Like, just so nice. Like, beautiful plants just being illuminated by the sunset. Yeah. What do they call that? Plastic Valley or? Chemical. Chemical Valley. Yeah. Chemical Valley. Yeah, there you go. Chemical the Valley, Chemical man. Valley. Yeah. The the fifth most uh, polluted industrial city on the planet, I read uh, some years ago, is Sarnia, Ontario. That's uh, wild. So anybody asks me, like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, the fifth most polluted industrial city in the world. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, wait, you're from India? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> You don't yeah. look Chinese, like yeah, no. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that no. is weird. Is, is it the most in North America, or is there another city in North America this morning? Uh, it's fighting with Montreal. Oh, that's weird. Montreal of all places. Yeah, because the outside of Montreal is all uh, industrial. Uh, yeah, that's true. And Paris is another really big one as far as Western cities. Uh, and then the the next, like the top three, are Chinese and Indian. Uh, top mm -hmm. four, top whatever. Um, yeah. But but yeah, so our claim to fame uh, in the the armpit <laughs> of of Canada. Uh, I wonder if that I wonder if that led to kind of that punk rock. <laughs> I, I, there was a lot of punk rock back when I, there I think was. we're around the same age. Yeah. So you know, like SRB and Pud and um, I was yeah, actually SRB, in man. I went to school with SRB. I went to school with those guys. Yeah. Nice. I was actually in a punk rock band uh, back in the day called Case Face, and we used to do oh yeah do some of those Battle of the Bands and all that. Battle of the Bands, yeah, stuff. yeah. It's too, like I haven't really noticed. Like I've come back and I've I've been around. Like I bicycle around and I try and like I got back in the summer, so I had to look around and I don't know. It's, there's not. It doesn't seem like there's that many things for you know youth to get into now. Like we had no. We had that um, the Y where the riverside is now, where the yeah. um, homeless shelter or whatever I'm, I should call it. Um, <clears throat> and <laughs> you don't you don't have to be too politically correct on this. Yeah, on no, this you're show. good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they they know that they don't have a home. They're they're right. Sure. I mean, yeah. uh, man, they I just spent 15 years being a homeless uh, traveler, so I I'm side by side, man. I. I was okay, so I got a good story. Um, I'm coming down the way from Monaco on the Côte, uh, Côte d'Azur, which is um, the southeast of France, uh, Nice, Cannes, you know, Cannes Film Festival, yeah. um, and then the big cities, Marseille. Uh, and in that area, it's super posh, really expensive. Uh, I got my tent. Um, and I arrive on the outskirts of Nice on the seaside quite late and I see a couple of tents. So I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> There's other travelers here doing the same thing. Perfect. Uh, so I put my tent up and I put one of my pegs directly into some poo. Okay. Nice. What, you don't know what kind of poo? <laughs> 
I was assuming that it was dog poo. Okay. Because we were on the coast, so I could see people walking their dog. I woke up in the morning. So luckily I had the sea there that I could wash my hands off. And and in the morning I could wash my tent off. Um, so it wasn't too gnarly, but... You know, yeah. it was a it was a spanner in the in the gearbox. Um, so I I woke up in the morning and the other tents were still there, and I was going to introduce myself, but I realized they were actually like proper homeless, um, and they were they were squatting there long term. Uh, so I realized that I put my tent in their toilet. Oh, lovely! Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So you do yeah. so you do know what kind of poo it was then. <laughs> <laughs> it all came full circle. There's something worse about that too. <laughs> yeah. Not not knowing would have been so much better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Totally. Oh, that was just some, some some dog shit. Um so I, I got a question about like obviously you've traveled a lot. I think it said you've been close to a hundred countries. Yeah, eighty eight. Yeah, there you go. Wow. Okay. When people talk to you about this, and we're probably going to be in this group too, do they come at you with a lot of misconceptions about other places in the world? Because you think about what we hear in the mm-hmm. West about, like I read you traveled to Palestine, for example, yeah. and we hear a lot about Palestine and that geographical area. Going to a place like that or going to a place like Israel, for example, because I know you traveled there too. Uh when people come up to you and they talk to you about that sort of place and traveling to those sorts of places, is it, do people have a good idea of what it's actually like, or is everything that we've sort of understood from like media and word of mouth and things like that? Do we, are we completely out to lunch on what it's actually like over there or is it somewhat close? Uh, and this can go for other countries too. I think that for the most part, we're completely out of, out to lunch. We're being propagandized Uh, is what you're saying. I, not necessarily that. Well, I don't know whether it's it's intentional or unintentional. Um, there's just a massive naivety to the way things are. I right off the top of my head, not focusing on like any political agenda, but um, for example, Thailand. A lot of people say, "Oh, poor country." <laughs> it is yeah. not a poor country, man. No. It hasn't been poor for a very long time. You know, think about all the tourism that's been going there since that movie, The Beach, with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, right. Right? Like, Chiang Mai is one of the largest uh, expat digital nomad. That word, by the way, makes me cringe. Uh, this Nomad? Know, no, digital nomad. Oh, digital? Okay. Oh, digital nomad. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Like, I... I've gotten the I've gotten the opportunity to meet some actual nomads and like some Bedouins in the desert and stuff and like those people you know they live roughing it. I'm not saying they have a hard life. They're they have what they need. They're happy about that. Also in Kyrgyzstan the guys who are selling sheep, they're not poor. You know, like they're I'm not saying they don't have money, but the the lifestyle is pretty tough. Um and, you know, not everybody has money. Um, so there is a lot of lack in infrastructure. And, you know, if your teeth hurt, you can't just run over to the dentist because you're out in the middle of the mountains, you know, surrounded by bigger, larger mountains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, the roads are really awful. So it's going to take you many hours to get to the big city uh, to get your teeth fixed up. Or, you know, if you break your ankle or so on and so forth, an ambulance just doesn't arrive and, and pick you up and drive you over to the hospital, right? Um, so they they have, uh, you know, a pretty rough, uh, difficult uh, job. And their skin is quite leathery from the really hard sun and so on and so forth. These digital nomads, you know, they sit in these uh, in these cities and they make standard Swedish, Canadian, you know, German, Australian wages, which are significantly higher than where they're staying in said country, Cambodia, Laos, Philippines, you know, let's pick the cheapest country possible where it has the nicest options. And then we can live completely in luxury. This is entitlement. 
and then right. saying, oh, look at me and look at my great life. I'm really living. And it's like, wow, okay. Like there's something to be said about having a certain level of humbleness. Mm-hmm. Like it's fine that you make money. You make lots of money, you know, good on you. But you don't have to tell everybody. And when you're in a village that has some nice thing, let's say a river running through it where everybody wants to, to go spend the day on, uh, whether on a boat or whatever, um, you know, a lot of those villagers live on a hundred bucks a day. Uh, sorry, a hundred bucks a month. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. hundred bucks a day didn't sound too bad to me. No, 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 Not bad at all. Sorry. <laughs> Little slip there. No, a hundred bucks a month, hundred and fifty bucks a month. Uh, in in you know in in West Africa, seventy five, fifty bucks a month. Um, so if you're earning three thousand, four thousand, six thousand bucks a month, I don't think you should be walking around letting them know, reminding right. them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's a reason why people went to India. 40, 50 years ago, wearing, you know, hippie clothes that people call like these, you know, baggy cotton pants. They kept it really simple because you don't need to be flashing all of your stuff to people who aren't in that environment. You know what I mean? Like they're, I don't know. It it kind of frustrates me. Um, Anyway, so this misconception of oh you know poor people that there are certain areas that are still developing but there there's really like very little third world left anymore mm-hmm. like it's it's pretty much been you know taken care of of course there are certain areas that are hit with let's say droughts like especially um uh sudan uh somalia that area of Northeast Africa, um, they're having a really hard time with the way that weather has changed. You know, the, the desert is expanding. So as the desert expands, these areas get more arid. They can't grow the way that they used to. They have to move further south. They have to migrate to a different area. Um, so those people are really having it pretty hard. Um, but for the most part, I grew up watching commercials with these African babies with like swollen bellies and flies all over their face with yeah. John Lennon in the background playing Imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you remember this commercial. It was Absolutely. every Christmas, every Christmas. And it was like, you know, oh, give some money, help the children. Now, I'm not against that, but I would say probably 70% of that money didn't go to the children. It went to the companies that were running the ads, running all of that stuff, right? Um, I think it went even higher. I think it was like, what, didn't they? Probably even it higher, like yeah. I'm giving them yeah. the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's nice. very it generous was, of you, yeah. It was in the 80s, so I'm hoping that they were doing better then than they are now. <laughs> I, I'm sure yeah. now it's 95. <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, or maybe it's vice versa. Who knows? Um, but I do know that there were 15,000 NGOs in Ghana when I was there. And uh, I'm not really seeing a lot of progress from 15,000 NGOs. Uh, you would think that, you know, if there were that many people doing that much infrastructural development, then, you know, the country would be running similar to Slovakia or Czech Republic or Bulgaria or, you know, certain countries that came out of the uh, Soviet Union in the early 90s and had to really redevelop, reorganize uh, in many different facets. Um, Mm -hmm. Ghana is still way behind that. You know what I mean? Mm, Yeah. I have a kind of a follow up to to go along with that. So you, so you mentioned Somalia. Uh, it, if anybody is familiar with history in the last thirty years, I'm sure you already know this. But um, a lot of the as countries a Canadian, do... what's that? Sorry, no, as sorry. I, I I thought we were going. Okay, yeah. 
Sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say like uh, a lot of the countries, I'm curious how many of these countries you've actually been to, but a lot of the countries that do still have extreme poverty that exists, at least mm. from my, my, what I've read and what I've seen are countries mm. that are, are still war torn. Uh, so a country like Somalia, which still gets bombed routinely by our neighbors to the south who will remain nameless uh, <laughs> or countries in the Middle East who also continuously get bombed by that country to the south of us. Those countries are obviously still war torn. I wonder, like, have you been to a place like that that's still like actively engaged in either a civil war or something like that? Have you ever traveled to any of those parts? Uh, I no, I couldn't get into. I was at the border of Syria when the war first started, like at the very, very beginning. Um, so they closed the border, and I ended up flying from Jordan to Morocco. Was that a hard flight to get? Like something like that? No. No, 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 no. It's super easy and and pretty affordable. They're they're really not that far apart from one another, and there's a lot of transit between all of these Arab countries, so uh, pretty affordable. Um, I was just wondering more on the demand aspect, like try, trying to get out of there. There would have been a lot of people, obviously, trying to flee that no, particular no, no, no. area. It, it wasn't no? really like that because it was the very beginning. So, like it, you know, it was more like what is happening. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it, it kind of, it was maybe surprising, like, uh, just came out of left field, like really didn't, didn't see it coming at all. And I'm talking for most people, at least that's what I understood because I was, you know, 400 kilometers away, uh, mm. a week before and I didn't hear anything about it. Yeah, um, right. and I'd been living in Egypt for a few months beforehand and I didn't hear anything about it. Uh, so I was in Egypt for the election, uh, the first um, democratic election. Mm-hmm. So there was like a million and a half people that gathered in the main square, uh, Tahrir Square in Cairo. Um, aside from that, there wasn't really any like revolutionary or war-like. Uh, I mean, I was in Kurdistan, um, in Turkey, which had a lot of, um, like Turkish military, um, a lot of checkpoints, a lot of like checking for, you know, they're just making sure that there isn't any terrorism happening or whatnot. Um, I didn't have a visa at the time. I'd overstayed my visa. Um, I was working illegally. Um, so when the police pulled me over, uh, there was a really huge ordeal. I, I ended up in a military uh, station and I was with my Turkish girlfriend, thankfully, because um, nobody spoke English. And uh, and basically after a few hours, they were like, okay, you need to get to the border and go to Georgia right now. We're going to give you a pass. Um, if you get caught again by any military, I can't tell you what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's scary. I go, hey. Yes, sir. That's a little frightening. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm off to gone. Georgia. I'm a ghost. Yeah, yeah I guess um, so. And so, you know, I was, I was in Georgia. I would say a couple years after, and I was in Sri Lanka a couple years after their civil war. I was, I guess, I was in places that hadn't yet recovered from what had happened beforehand, mm-hmm. but I was never like you know, in the, in the heart of it. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you manage that? So kind of, uh, scarier situations or things that, so the Turkish military, um, I, I read an article that Troy Shantz wrote, um, where you were held up at one point. Um, it was an article from 2020 and, like, how do you manage that mentally? Like, how how do you get through that? I feel like I would just be turtling and shit in my pants. <laughs> like, Basically honestly. the same. Basically the same. Uh, I think the... I would like to remember the first time something, like, where you're like, oh, my God, am I going to end up in jail for this? Uh Right off the top of my head, I'm coming back from uh, Southeast Asia into Australia and the um, border security, the customs security, they asked for my bank details um, 
at the checkpoint, right? Um, they wanted to make sure they had enough money to enter there on a tourist visa. I'd been going back and forth a few times without anybody asking me that. I knew it was possible. I knew it could happen. But I was taking my chances. Um, so when they did that, I had 300 bucks in my bank account and $100 in my pocket. And they were like, what the hell are you doing here? You don't have any money. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to book a flight. It's my friend's uh, wedding in New Zealand, and I'm going to get a working holiday visa there, blah, 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 blah. Right away, they put me in customs. They checked all my gear, you know, looking through my laptop, flash disks, everything. They're, they can see all of my movement, right? So I'm going back and forth from Southeast Asia. I'm working a month in Australia as a carny and then taking that money, going to Southeast Asia for five months, coming back doing it again, going to Southeast Asia for five months, coming back. So they were convinced that I was a drug dealer uh, yeah, or some yeah. kind of runner yeah. or something, right? They, yeah. they, they assumed that I was running drugs back and forth. Um, so they went through this whole thing. And then when they realized that obviously I'm, I'm not that drug mule or whatever, they figured this guy's working illegally. Um, so there was a flyer in my, in my backpack that, that I, I was staying with a couple of girls that I'd met in Laos and the one girl we, we hooked up. So I stayed in her bunk for like a month or, or like three weeks while I was working at Carnival in Sydney and the hostel people never caught on. And I just go in and out as I pleased, managing to avoid paying any rent while I was doing this carnival gig. Right. And then these two girls, we all went to Philippines together. Anyway. Um, so she leaves this flyer or, or somehow this flyer got into my bag from her work. Oh, no. oh wow. And, and they're like, so you're working at this place? I'm like, I don't even know what that place is. Um, and, uh, and so then there was a big grill and blah, blah, blah. And I told them that I'm getting some money. Uh, I'm inheriting some money because my, my grandma had passed away, which was true. Um, but not the inheritance. Um, so they called my mom. Uh, they literally asked for her phone number, called her at whatever time it was in, in Sarnia. And my mom answers and she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> Thankfully, right? Because otherwise, I don't know, I, I, I might have been put in a detainment cell until I could figure out my way out, um, right. pay my flight, whatever it was. Um, so I got really, really lucky on that one. And the whole time my, my hands are vibrating. So I think each time something like that happens, your hands vibrate a bit less. Um, okay. I, I spent, uh, about 18 hours in a holding cell in Poland because I'd overstayed a visa uh, three or four months uh, in the Schengen area of Europe. And they gave me a little brutchen. It's like a small German baguette, really small one, and like some spam kind of stuff. That's okay. it. <laughs> that, Lovely. Wow. Uh, that was my meal. I'm like, thanks, guys. Um, and I had to sign so many papers. Like the, the amount of bureaucracy was insane. Um, you know, and so I ended up getting banned from Poland for two years. I had two weeks to get out of the country, um, but I bought a flight actually right then. As soon as it was all, as soon as they let me out, I ordered a flight to Dublin, no, to Shannon on the west coast of Ireland. Um, had to pay a pretty handsome amount for a last minute flight over there. Um, but it got me out of the situation. Uh, I I wasn't too sure if I would get banned for 10 years from the whole Schengen. Um, but, you know, you just eventually you're just like, OK, whatever, like this certain things I need to do in order to to keep going. Right. In order to eat, in order to like I got to find a job in Europe or else I got to go home. I don't right. want to go home. Yeah, I don't want to go home. I want to continue trying to figure this out. So find an illegal job if i get caught doing that illegal job i get sent home fair enough okay um so i lived in europe for five years 
um, I was overstayed for the majority of that time. Okay. Uh, That's wild. So I guess eventually like your skin gets thick enough, right? Do you get excited when you're going to a new place? So let's say you're in a place that's kind of comfortable. So you're talking about staying at a hostel for like 30 days for, for free. When you leave that place, is it more? do you get more of a sense of excitement because you're going to a new spot? Or is it more kind of nerve-wracking because you're like, oh, great, I got to set myself up again for the next little while? Yeah, I really don't like the setting myself up again vibe, actually. <laughs> like it, it, was, it was good for a while. Um, you know, I think if I'd started when I was 20 things would have been a bit different as well because hostels are fun in your early twenties, even in your late twenties. But as you get older, I don't know. They're not as fun. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. <laughs> Do you, uh, it to hurt does, maybe. <laughs> yeah. It might, it might start to bug you. So it's, it's funny. You talk about staying in places like hostels. Does it bug you when people come up to you and they talk to you about your travels and they're like, Oh, I love to travel. We went to this resort in Mexico yeah. and I went to like, does that bug you at all when you're like, no, no, no that's not travel. That's like luxury. I, I don't want to be like, you know, Oh, you think that that's travel. It's, and I, I really don't think that I'm that way. I'm more like, Oh, that's cool. Did you check out? Uh, uh, uh. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Mexico, um, there's really no instances because uh, everything is very touristy there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least well, like you could I use. <laughs> yeah, like Cuba. If you went to Cuba, did you go to Havana? Yeah. Like, or did you um, just stay on your resort and stay in the bus and that kind of? For thing? example, okay, you know, great way to to avoid all the tourism is to jump on the road and hitchhike. Did you, okay. did you try to, you know, venture out into villages? Oh, no, I stayed at my hotel. All right, well, maybe next time I would recommend, you know, going out into the countryside and trying to find some of these villages and meeting, like, real people that live in that country and see what they're like because it's probably going to give you a, a different opinion. <laughs> yeah. And then some people will be like, oh, you think you're so smart. And the others will be like, that's a really good idea. I didn't really think about that. Yeah. Right. Majority of people coming back to Sarnia were like, you think you're so smart. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Basically. It was like, oh, you've been everywhere, so now you know. I'm like, well, no, but I have a, an insight of, you know, one or two things. Well, that's that's the thing. Uh, as as Josh alluded to earlier, we're, we, just, we just hear we just hear about places on the media or, or in movies or whatever. And, and you're, yeah, movies is a really real, big one. Man. Yeah. You're not getting that real picture of, of what it's actually like. So you've, you've actually been able to see that. And I lived and in Kazakhstan you. for a year and a half. How many people do you think said Borat? Oh, Borat. is that that country that's from Borat? <laughs> yeah. They probably didn't even think it was real. Is that a real place? Oh, I thought it was just pretend. Is it really like in the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, really. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. totally. Uh, I mean, they have probably more oil and gas than a majority of countries in uh, Asia. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly like that. A lot lot Um, of great MMA fighters, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole society in Central Asia especially Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Mongolia, they love all things fighting. Like, yeah. It goes all the way back to, you know, riding on horses and throwing spears and all that stuff, uh, shooting arrows. Like, they're, they are serious warrior cultures back in the day. Um, so, of course, wrestling and, and boxing and all of those, you know... The, <laughs> The the national sport of Kyrgyzstan, I can't remember what it's called. It's the name. I'm not going to get the name, but you ride on horses. It's like polo. It's like, you know, you got kind of stick, except in this case, there's no stick, just your hand. I think I haven't actually seen it live. Um, And there's a dead uh, sheep carcass and you, you grab this thing and then you got to race it over to you know, I guess a goal and you have to throw it in the goal 
and other people are riding their horse towards you, trying to take it out of your hand. <laughs> That's, that does sound like something out of Borat. <laughs> yeah, it's like a dead <laughs> sheep carcass, like wow. just bones. <laughs> That's wild. oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> and they no, actually, I mean, I would pay to see it. I would pay to see it. And they actually still play it. And it, like, I can see where it came from. You know what I mean? I can see like, you know, a bunch of people bored on horses and, and, you know, there's not much out there in the, in the outback of, of Kyrgyzstan in those mountains, except, you know, sheep and, uh, and, and nature. So absolutely stunning, beautiful country, but not a lot around. Um, so I could see how like these, you know, they're like, oh yeah, throw it around and then it becomes a sport and then it becomes the national sport and it's still the national sport. And I think, yeah, way to go guys. Um, I really root for these countries that are trying to hold on to their cultural, uh, not integrity, but like the, the, the things that make them culturally unique from one yeah another. like their roots kind of thing yeah like their grassroots um traditions you know right. obviously everyone for the last 20 or 30 or 40 years has been learning how to speak english mm -hmm. uh in some countries they were speaking a colonial language before that so they're in a really big risk of losing their own language uh, yeah, right. and in Central Asia, you have that sort of situation a bit, and a lot of these countries are doing their best because they were speaking Russian for, you know, uh, eighty to one hundred and fifty years. Um, they're trying their best to bring back their their older culture, and and get people to speak their original language again, so it doesn't fade into history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question about your, your book. So um, uh, unfortunately, I just got this a week ago, so I'm only a quarter way through it. That's all right. That's um, good, man. A week, a, a quarter in a week is awesome. That's faster <laughs> than I read. I'm, I'm a slow reader, um, but I, it's, it's a really interesting book. It's, it's really well written. Yeah. And uh, the, you got the character Freddie Woomba, which I would mm. assume is, is based on yourself. Yeah. Um, how much of the book is is reality? How much of it is fiction? Did you have to embellish anything? Yeah, I mean, not not so much embellish, uh, just rearrange. Okay. Um, so, like, you know, this might happen in the book, but it might have happened at some other given time. Okay. Um, just to make the lineage right. Yeah. And then, you know, there's one character, uh, which is actually like five characters. So like five uh, people I met, I combine into like one person. I see. Um, also, there's there are certain things that didn't happen at all. Um, so I don't know. It's probably about 85% nonfiction. Cool. Um I really, I really, um, like I enjoy the writing. I think, I think, uh, like, did you have any training, any literary training at all? No, I, uh, I've been writing since I was a teenager. Like you were in a punk band. I wanted to be in a band, but I didn't know how to play any instruments. Um, okay. so I wanted to sing, but none of my friends would give me a chance. Uh, okay. so I would, so I would like write lyrics in notebooks and then nice. At some point, somebody turned me on to Wu-Tang Clan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when I was a little kid, when I was like grade five, grade six, grade seven, I really liked hip hop, rap music, you know, crisscross, backwards, yeah, yeah. <laughs> backwards jeans and all that. Um, yeah, but I was kind of insulted when I got a bit older uh, for listening to rap music. It was like, oh, why aren't you listening to grunge music, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So I kind of got away from it and went into punk rock and then around 16 or 17 years old, uh, somebody played some Wu-Tang Clan. And I was like, holy crap, what the hell is this? And of yeah. course, I was listening to Cypress Hill because I smoked a massive amount of weed. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but but all of this like Puff Daddy and all that, like even Notorious B.I.G. I, I absolutely love B.I.G. Um, 
amazing MC, also just like super creative, um, really unique character, really dominated the industry. Um, but at the time, because he was popular, I was just like, eh, like yeah, anything, yeah. you know what I mean? Anything popular. Like, way, man. Yeah, you find you find your identity or your alternative identity through music in ways, right? Like that that was me too. I mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I skateboarded, so it was like, ooh, I'm me too. you know, I'm <laughs> I'm on the other side. And so eventually I got into hip hop, writing rhymes, and I started trying to be this MC, you know, spitting freestyles with friends. I went out west in uh two thousand. I met some people, uh they were pretty serious about trying to make this thing work and and I just got more into it. Um, but I knew that I wasn't really, that probably wasn't going to work for me. And I also just got more and more into traveling and, and cooking. And, um, and so I just started writing and then I read Anthony Bourdain's book, uh, kitchen confidential in 2004, shortly after it came out. And I just thought, wow, this guy is, really doing it like he's showing the industry he's showing everything that's happening uh but in like a a very good literary way and he was influenced by the same writers that i was starting to get into um william burroughs being one of the major ones uh jack kerouac um that sort of beatnik era and i was was gonna ask you your influences because i i definitely got a kerouac feel from you know, the, the meeting of the characters and the dialogue and everything like that. Yeah. Um, like Kerouac, absolutely. Of course, on the road is a classic. Um, the first time somebody gave it to me, I was hitchhiking across Canada and I read it and it just, it went right over my head. Mm -hmm. Didn't get it at all. Uh, I read it in France when I was picking grapes. I, I was again, working illegally, trying to find a job, waiting for a farm to give me a job. They had helicopters flying around, counting the people on the field, picking grapes. Okay. So it was really hard to find a under the table job. Um, eventually I got a passport picture. I had my picture replaced into the passport picture and I had it photocopied and I became John uh, O'Connell. He was a, my friend in Ireland had arranged it for me and got me this photocopied picture. So I became this Irish guy because Irish don't need a visa to work in, in the Schengen. Um, so everybody starts calling me John, right? Hey, John, I'm not answering. <laughs> <laughs> John, John. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Right, um, that's got a hearing issue. <laughs> anyway, while I'm trying to figure out this job, trying to, cause I got very little money left. Um, there's a library down the road. So I go to the library and they've got this little English, uh, section and on the road is in there. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll give it a spin again. So I read it. Oh my God. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. The, the writing is great, but the way that he encapsulates the road experience, mm-hmm. you know, like he just really, like I lived through my own experiences in that book. He somehow in the fifties, he wrote about things that I went through myself, but in a way that I could really identify with them. And that is the thing, you know what I mean? Like reading the, for whom the bell tolls, Hemingway just kills it with the being able to identify with what's going on in the civil war time. And like how these villagers, uh, sorry, not how, what are these villagers going through? How are they living? Like he just does such a great job at describing all of the nuances, giving you a really big picture of what's going on, but in a fictional setting, right? Right. Um, Yeah, so... So there's definitely some, uh, Josh, Josh is a self-published author too. He can talk to that, but... uh, Oh, yeah. I, I would say similar, similar stylings, right, Josh? You were taking some of your real life experiences and creating fiction from it. Yeah, I was calling it a work of faction because it was like faction. I don't know, half, half real, half, facts, half, half fiction, pretend. Yeah, exactly. So that was that was kind of how I described it. But yeah, mine was about living in Vancouver because I I moved out to Vancouver, ended up homeless at one point, and uh, oh, yeah, you know, spent time in hostels and stuff like that. So there was there was elements of that that I brought so in. He stayed at the Canby. 
I did say yeah, I did at one point. Yeah, absolutely. I also yeah. stayed at the candy for a bit. Yeah, I stayed there, I think, two or three nights when I was out there. They weren't together. They were separate. But yeah, um, it, I noticed one thing, like through the interviews you did and also through talking with you today, you really have, uh, you could tell that you have a very soft spot for villages. Just by the way, you talk about villages and villagers. You seem to have mm. a soft spot for Maybe I'm speaking out of, out of line. But no. um, what is it? What is it about that? Like these smaller areas that you've gone to that is really sort of left an impression on you versus maybe going to the cities and stuff like that in these other countries? Yeah. I mean, obviously I've worked in the cities because that's where the economy is, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, it's tough, right? We're, we are seeing the counter movement. Like we're the first generation to really see people actually leaving the city and going back to the countryside. Yeah. Um, COVID really, really kicked that off big time. Like it was happening before, but COVID has really, you know, send it spiraling. Sarnia is so expensive to buy housing now. And I mean, it's because of that, right? Um, We can blame Chinese immigrants or Japanese investors or whoever you want to blame. It's people who don't want to live in the city anymore, leaving out to the countryside. Um, Yeah. So we had this urbanization and now we're having this counter urbanization and people have been predicting it for, for 20 odd years. Like I remember hearing about it, you know, back in the day, like, Oh, you know, what's going to happen. Eventually people are going to leave. We didn't know that it would happen so fast. Um, But it's good. Like a friend of mine, he has a farm out in Petrolia, uh, Daryl Carver. And he, he does, uh, you know, he, he sells chicken breasts and chicken thighs and stuff. And he does pork as well, like uh, really, really good organic pork. Um, if we don't go back to the countryside, we're going to lose everything. Mm-hmm. Like we need farmers. We need people to do agriculture. We need people to be motivated to grow rice you know we can't be like oh i want to work online and and make a hundred thousand bucks every three months you know it's i understand like of course it's an advantage you want to make money and you want to do minimal work that's awesome yeah um but if we don't have these people who are like genuinely motivated by doing the real work. <laughs> yeah. We're in big crap. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. the backbone of society, right? The fact like we all, man's got to eat. That's yeah. why I go there. Cause it's the backbone of society. And that's where you're going to find the way that real people live. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I first started traveling, it was all about, I remember when I was hitchhiking across Canada, I met this guy, Ari, and he'd been to 35 countries he was working in Grand Cayman as a bartender and he told me all these stories about Cambodia and so forth. I was like, wow, that's so amazing. And he was like, yeah, I came back to Canada because I realized I have everything here. He was in the Okanagan. He was in uh, Penticton. And so he's surrounded by nature and beauty and, and, you know, agriculture and so on and so forth. Um, So I was kind of in the same parallel like i want to go see waterfalls and have parties and you know drink with expats from different countries and be a backpacker and all that stuff um i did it for a little while and i was like there's got to be more to this (laughs) yeah yeah you know like i that was fun but there's got to be something else and that's what led me to walk the Camino de Santiago because I was looking for the something else. I was not, uh, I was at the end of my road with actual traveling. I had done some really big hiking. Um, I'd been able to explore some really nice areas and meet some really, you know, genuinely local people just toughing it out and, and doing their thing. Um, so I felt like I got a bit of a connection. I can go home now. You know what I mean? I've, I, I've lived out what I originally planned to do. I stayed in India and learned how to cook Indian food. I was in Thailand and 
like I just never had any cultural connection to Thailand and because it's just so touristy in the in the areas where all of the foreigners go right um and so I just figured you know it's time to go back home and and maybe concentrate on something else uh, but the other side of me is saying no there's there's really like something out here for me and so it led me on the way um and then I walked from Rome to Istanbul the next year um and then I hitchhiked 25,000 kilometers around Europe and Africa. Uh, and when I got into Africa, I really started to uh, see colonial effects. You know, modern colonial effects and prior colonial effects. The uh, cacao, for example. Uh, Ivory Coast has a couple of cash crops. They have the... Um, trees which are you know there's only one third of their rainforest remaining and then they have the cacao which is number two i'm pretty sure or vice versa um so they grow all of this for nestle nestle controls the cost of the cacao if they decide to you know charge less then the farmers get crazy angry and they start fighting so nestle has the ability to start a civil war I mean, that's wow. insane. This Western, you know, American or European company has the ability to to decide this country's future. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with the political leaders. You know, you have French uh, politicians that are trying to get this person in power because this person is going to make decisions which are benefiting French uh, development, you know, like whether it be the corporations that are in the country. And then you have, you know, all these companies that are from France um, in French West Africa, and the highest tier positions are all French people from France. They're not Africans. They're not people from that country. Okay, mm -hmm. number one, they aren't educated enough to do those jobs. They don't have the work experience to do that. They don't know how. Um, so why aren't we teaching them to do that? You know, why are we continuing to put French or American or Canadian, you know what I mean? Like at some point we got to say, okay, you know what? Let's train all these people to do it themselves and move out of the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. They get, they got to be more uh, educated than our politicians. Right. <laughs> like, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Truly. <laughs> truly. You know what's, absolutely. You know what's funny is about what you're saying is that, uh, you know, over the last, I forget what it is, 20 or 30 years, like we've pulled half of the world out of extreme poverty. Like we being like the world has pulled half of the world out of extreme poverty, but there is almost this force that's like, doesn't want them to get, too close to the western world it's like all right you guys are out of extreme poverty but you can stay right where you are it's just a tick above it and we're, yeah, and we're I mean, good we with still you gotta there. make money right like the canadian oil and gas companies for example they gotta continue making money so yeah you know they they need to keep themselves in a position of uh um demand so yeah we have we have the biggest drills in the world right so any country that wants to dig something, they call us and they say, oh, can we get these drills? And then we they pay insane amounts of whatever it is, bursary or, um, you know, OK, we're going to give you these drills. We're going to give you this equipment. And that entitles us to 40 percent of whatever you pull out of the ground. Right. And then they're uh, also having to take loans from the banks and, and then they're just in their pockets too. And yeah. yeah. And that, that world bank thing is also like, that's another thing that I, I didn't really know until I went to West Africa and saw like how, how deep these countries are into world bank. And as you said, stupid politicians, it really comes down to stupid politicians. Like why are these people not being educated in Africa? It's not necessarily France's fault. It's not the States' fault. It's the politicians that are in power there. They make the decisions, you know. I went to get my 
I was in Gambia and I crossed the border from Senegal into Gambia at night. And I didn't realize I'd crossed the border and I didn't get a stamp to enter Gambia. So when I leave Gambia, they're going to be like, where's your stamp? Give me X amount of money mm. <laughs> so that you can leave, you know, give me my backsheesh and, and you can go. And I'm like, okay, I got to avoid that. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So I got to go find a way to get this stamp in my passport. So I go all over the place. I spend a few days trying to figure out how to get this stupid thing. And then I go to this office where they're going to give me this stamp apparently. And there's eight people in this office, really small office, totally hot boxed with cigarettes. There's a small little old school TV in the top corner. Everybody's got their feet up on the table. <laughs> <laughs> they're all chilling. They got drinks in their hands. They're smoking. They're watching the football. <laughs> Amazing. This, this is like, I don't know, the immigration office or, or whatever, right? And so what happens, and this is why I go to the countryside, and I'm still trying to answer this question. Um, what happens is whoever gets in power, whether it's municipal or provincial or federal, whoever gets in power, they are from one tribe because everything is nepotism in these countries. Also in Central Asia, there's a lot of nepotism. It's like this tribe is holding the power, so they want to make sure none of the other tribes get it. And we're kind of the same uh, in the West, right? It's like, oh, okay, yeah. I have the power, U.S. Just we want to make sure that, you know, all the others don't get too much <laughs> to overcome yeah. us, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, world wars, uh, Germany, France, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so these guys, they're like, okay, we're in power. We don't want them in power. So they hire all their cousins and brothers and uncles to work these municipal jobs civil jobs civil jobs pay pretty well compared to non-civil jobs they have some mm -hmm. kind of benefit system uh even if it's small um you know they have reasons to want to work for government obviously just like here um so they hire all these people that are family members because they want their family to be at the advantage but these family members don't know how to do any of the jobs they're hired to do <laughs> So they got the same problems over there that we got here. Yes. Like, or at least some of them. That's yeah. it. That's it, man. Yeah. I'm telling you. It's funny. And I, you know, in order to see what we have here, I had to go and see it someplace else. Yeah. 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 You get, it sense. opens your eyes, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Steve, so what's what's next for you? I, I'm pretty close to finished. Um, I want to do this like hitchhiking handbook. Okay. So uh, right now I'm looking at 85 stories, all of the stories under 1,200 words, um, and just like various random stories from giving a very quick example. I was in Mexico. I was cursing the sky. Why doesn't a nice car ever drive uh, stop and pick me up? Because all the nice cars, they always drive by. I'm like, ah, oh, why don't they stop? Why don't they stop? This beautiful brand new BMW pulls up tinted windows, everything. I jump inside excited because I've been waiting so long and it's super hot outside. And I realized that the guy's in a Speedo. <laughs> okay. And very quickly, he's pulling his dick and balls out of his Speedo. <laughs> Jesus. I'm like, oh God. So I had to jump out of the car. <laughs> um, another quick example, I was in Austria and a guy dropped me off at a rest stop so I could get my next lift. And he pulls out his phone and he's like, uh, no, he said, he said, oh, can I get a picture of you? And I thought, why not? And then he pulled out his phone and he started showing me dick pics. Ah, uh, so he wanted to. He, he wanted a he dick pic. And I was like, eh, part of you. Audi. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. So, yeah, all those kinds of like uh, random, you know, the best of and the worst of and the shortest and the longest and like all over the world you know like i said i hitchhiked 120,000 kilometers so i've i've crossed half the planet hitchhiking and walking um so there's a lot of pretty good stories in there um also i'm trying i'm going to be finishing my my second book which is called lifer and uh that one you know lifer like somebody who spends their life in jail 
this mm-hmm. is sort of like a life for somebody who spends their life on the road. Okay. Um, yeah, really cool. And uh, essentially the, the main story is that, you know, the culture of backpacking and long-term traveling and stuff is being really exploited, really, really exploited by digital nomads, by Instagram, uh, TikTok, all of this stuff. It's like, oh, you know, I got to get money so I can continue traveling. Uh, I get it totally, but you shouldn't be selling yourself, you know, like look at me and look at what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, just so that you can keep yourself going. Like it, I don't know. It's a weird narrative. Right. And then, and then you're standing in front of a waterfall, this like really beautiful waterfall and going, Oh, you could do this too. follow me. Right. Like, yeah. let me be your yeah. influencer. But you know, two days later, you've got food poisoning and you're, you're pissing yellow stuff out of your ass because it happens. It happens very often. I've had dysentery, uh, probably 10 times Oh wow! Uh, in in the book, in the book, you're going to read about a water poisoning episode where in Montenegro, there's a little area where the water is not, uh, treated and none of the locals told me, and I'm, I walk up house to house going, can I get water please? Because I'm walking the way, right? So people are giving me water and I'm drinking it. And then suddenly I'm getting really weak and really tired. And then all of a sudden, eventually, blah, 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 I'm projectile vomiting everywhere. And then at night, I'm in my tent uh, and it's crazy raining outside. And I got to run outside to have my little diarrhea session. Oh, man. Um, That sounds awful. <laughs> but there, there's really a lot of that stuff and and if you're not going through that stuff then i'm sorry you're not really traveling you know <laughs> there it is that's what yeah yeah that's a perfect note to end on yeah all right yeah. thanks thank so you thank so you much dude thanks uh when you're back from your trip we'll have to get together and, and maybe we'll have you back on at some point too when you yeah uh, sounds good that's got cool. your second book on the go or something like that Thank you.